0: Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 6, verses 19 through 34. This is the uh, part of the Sermon on the Mount that addresses treasures in heaven and anxiety about life. That's Matthew 6, verses 19 through 34. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, "What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear?" For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly uh, for the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble.
1: Our text for this morning's sermon is 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10. I'll read that at this time, but I'll I'll begin in verse 3 for the context. 1 Timothy 6, beginning verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs in 2003 a 16-year-old girl in england became a millionaire when she won the lottery at the time she was living in a foster home and and working a low-wage job, and so after her win, of course, she bought a big house and began spending her money on drugs and parties and gifts for her new friends. And she was living it up, she could buy anything that she wanted. But her new lifestyle left her feeling emptier than ever, and she even contemplated suicide. And ten years later, she only had $2,000 left in the bank, and she was finished living the high life. She had a job caring for the elderly and was studying to become a nurse. And, no surprise, she said she was happier then, ten years later, with no money than she was when she had plenty of money. And her quote was, "'Even if you say your life won't change, it does, and often not for the better. It nearly broke me, but thankfully, I'm now stronger.'" So she doesn't tell this story to prove a biblical point, and she's not necessarily a Christian. But it illustrates for us the fact that money is dangerous. Money does not satisfy even when so many many people pursue it like it does. So I've titled the message this morning, Godly Contentment. The Bible says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. We kind of roll our eyes and, and shake our heads at, at stories like this, and, and um, people who, who suddenly become wealthy and, and don't know how to handle the pressure and, and don't know how to handle their money. But there's, there's lots of stories about this kind of thing, uh, lottery winners, sports stars, celebrities, who destroy their lives because of their wealth. But I, I think all of us kind of think that we would be the exception. You know, give, us, give us a chance. You know, I'd, I'd love, to, love to prove them wrong. You might even make a donation to the building fund or something like that. But the Bible is clear about the danger of pursuing riches. Why is it that so many people who get rich quick make foolish decisions with their money? Is money really the problem or what is going on? Is living in poverty a better option? Is that the answer to the problem of coveting? On the other hand, what's the line between complacency and contentment? Should we be content with less than our best effort? I won't necessarily answer all of these questions, but the truth is that wealth or money itself is not evil, and it doesn't make people sin. And sudden wealth doesn't cause normal people to become unwise. It's not the wealth, but it's the desire, the pursuit of these riches that positions a person in a place that, that sets him up for tragedy. And if, if you're honest about it, a contented person wouldn't buy a lottery ticket. The person that buys a lottery ticket is, is pursuing wanting something that they don't have. And this passage gives a, a clear warning that a life that is oriented around making money, a life that is, is focused on becoming wealthy, or a heart whose singular focus is on acquiring material gain, will experience suffering and tragedy that no amount of money can prevent. You won't be able to buy enough insurance policies, security guards, or alarm systems to protect your soul from the destruction that awaits the powerful pull of pursuing wealth. This passage really gives us two opposing positions and we'll spend some time looking at each one. The first position is contentment and the second one is covetousness, and our version doesn't use the word coveting, and it's not necessarily a word that we commonly use today, but it is a biblical term and one that we've tended to replace with other words that carry a little less negative connotations. So whether we use the word or not, we need to know what the Bible says about our attitude towards money so we can evaluate ourselves against what God is calling us to. So if I had to to summarize this sermon in a few sentences, it would be something like this. Godly contentment is satisfaction in God that equips us to serve God and others without regard for our personal comforts. And covetousness separates us from God and others because we value things more than God and ultimately it will drown us under its crushing weight. So contentment is satisfaction in God And covetousness separates us from God because we're pursuing things more than God. We were fortunate to have the Anabaptist Foundation here at Calvary the other week to present a seminar on on family finances. And it's particularly important for young families to to have a good understanding about how to manage money. There's nothing like getting married and having children to to make you get serious about your money and, and how you're going to manage your financial needs. But this sermon isn't going to focus so much on on how we actually should manage our money as much as the attitudes that we should bring to our material stuff. So I'm going to step back just a little bit in the text here to to get a context for the verses before we jump into it. And the part I I read, verses 3 and and following, Paul basically gives a, a pretty tough condemnation to the false teachers in the church. The false teachers were teaching something other than the gospel of Jesus, and their teaching was inconsistent with godly living. The false teachers were known for, for arrogance and controversies and quarrels. And he gives a whole list of, of negative things that that characterize a false teacher and the people who follow the false teaching. And then he ends that list in verse 5 with a phrase that becomes a, a transition to our our text for today. It it seems to change the subject, but it it fits in with with the contrast that he's presenting between the godly teachers and and the ungodly people in the church. And then he specifically kind of revisits this subject of wealth later in the chapter. And it's important to note, he doesn't condemn money um, itself, but gives instructions on, on how money should be used, how wealth should be used. And we'll address that in a later sermon. So the phrase in, in verse 5 that, that he ends that list with is godliness. imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So what he was saying is that the false teachers were, were teaching for the wrong reasons. They were teaching in order to take advantage of the situation in order to line their pockets. And they thought that by teaching this godliness, they could get rich. So Paul takes this, this false idea of godliness being a means to gain and, and rephrases it to make a true statement in verse 6. And, so, and he rephrases it to say, actually, godliness with contentment is gained. It's not a means to gain, it is gain. And it's one of those verses, interestingly, whose, whose translation remains the same across a variety of versions. So if you have the King James or the NIV or the HCSB or the ESV, they all put this phrase exactly the same. It, it's, there's really no better way to, to translate it. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness itself is gain. It's, it's, it's qualified, though, with this qualifier, godliness with contentment. And so in, in contrast to those whose godliness was a means to experience material blessings, godliness with contentment is far greater gain. I'm going to pause just a minute here and talk about one kind of negative that that might occur with with the the teaching of contentment, and that's this idea of complacency. We don't want to confuse contentment with complacency, and we can kind of excuse one for the other. So uh, complacency is this idea of of being in a position that's not good. Of being in a place that's not healthy for the long term and not doing anything about it, and this could happen in your job and in, in your relationships or in your spiritual life, where, where you have a responsibility to do something, but you're not doing anything about it. You're not. That's not contentment. That's complacency. So, for example, you say you have a full-time job that, that's cut back to part-time, and but your expenses obviously stay full-time. But rather than looking for another job, you just you know, are okay with a part-time job and use the extra time to to practice, you know, your your golf or, or whatever else your your hobbies are. But your bills aren't getting paid, and and uh, it's harder to put food on the table. You're not experiencing, you're not living a contented life. You're, you're being complacent. You're not fulfilling the responsibilities that God has given to you, and that's laziness. That's not contentment. But that's not what we're talking about when we talk about contentment. And this, this contentment, complacency problem can happen in other areas of life as well. For example, your, your marriage or your spiritual life may not be as, as healthy and strong as it could be. You're not called to be contented with something that is unhealthy. And God's Word gives us certain directions on how things should be and how we're to order our lives and what kinds of things that we're responsible for. So husbands are responsible to love their wives in, in ways that include sacrificing for their well-being. We're called to to seek the kingdom of God. We are to resist the devil and draw near to God. So if we fail to to pursue growth in our spiritual life, if we refuse to apply what we have and what we know in ways that will allow us to mature, we're not being content, we're being complacent. And that the primary quality that's actually in view here in this verse, godliness with contentment is great gain, is the quality of godliness. So if if we're content but ungodly, we really haven't gained anything at all. And and while we emphasize the importance of contentment, it doesn't come at the expense of godliness or at the cost of being complacent. And A.W. Tozer said, Contentment is the deadly enemy of spiritual progress. The contented soul is the stagnant soul. So the contentment in this passage is referring to contentment that we are called to develop in regards to physical, material things. It doesn't mean that we're content with a spiritual life that is stagnant or with other relationships that are unhealthy. So what does it mean to be content? How do we live and experience life with a contentment that honors God? One of the classic passages on contentment is found in Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4. I'll read part of that, beginning in verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then jumping down to verse 19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul here experienced a contentment that did not depend on the circumstances around him. He, he went through a, a wide variety of external events that significantly impacted his life, but he learned to be content through all of those. And there's some significant events that, that might happen in our country that don't impact us personally, but we make a big deal out of those. For example, it really doesn't matter who wins the basketball tournament, but some people allow... Uh, kind of a remote event like that to define whether or not you're going to have a good week or a bad week. Paul isn't talking about circumstances that that are out there that that were happening to other people. These were things that were happening to him personally. These are significant events that are affecting his life in dramatic ways. He was brought low. He abounded. He faced plenty. He faced hunger. He, He had abundance and he had need. So what was his secret to experiencing contentment in all these circumstances? The first and primary reality is that contentment is a matter of faith. It's not something that we can create on our own. It's not something we we can exercise ourselves into experiencing outside of faith in Christ. Just like all the other Christian virtues, there's actions... In habits that we can put into place to cultivate these virtues, but it comes primarily through the person of Christ. Part of it is, is cognitive. It, it's based on, on what you know, on, on how you think. And part of it is experiential. It's based on, on what you do. Paul says he learned to be content, and learning happens in several different ways. It, it happens through instructions. It happens through knowledge, but it also happens through experience. And, and he describes some of the experiences that he went through, and that can be a difficult process, but it also equips us to experience true contentment. As he went through the ups and downs of, of his different experiences and experienced God's faithfulness through it all, he became more convinced that God would, in fact, take care of him, and he deepened his ability to be content. But the previous chapter in Philippians and in chapter 3 also details Paul's journey of faith, and that was a journey from a confidence and contentment in his own performance to a faith that was committed to Christ and to knowing Christ through his suffering, death, and resurrection. So learning contentment through his experiences was only possible because of his faith in Christ. And consistent with this idea that that faith, that contentment, is something that we learned. Paul here in, in Timothy gives a few logical arguments for why we should be contented people. And this passage is, is specifically referring to contentment in regards to our material goods. And so he, he basically gives two reasons that you should be content. One is, is that we brought nothing into the world, and two is that we're taking nothing out. And this is kind of a, a parallel to what Job said in... Job one twenty one. after he experienced his calamities, after Satan took away all of his earthly goods and his family, Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. He, he had this perspective that this is all temporary anyway. And two of the, the most significant transitions in the life of humans, the transition from the womb to the world, this transition of birth, and the transition from the world to the tomb after death occur without that person's help. So think about it, when it's time to be born, what, what does the baby actually contribute to the process? They're completely dependent on the mother, or, or the surgeon as it may be, to deliver the baby from the womb. It, it's independent of, of any participation of that baby. And after you die, you're, you're completely dependent on someone else to care for your body. Anything that happens to your body after you die is dependent on someone else. So what, what does the stuff you hold today, what value does it, does it contribute to those transitions in life? You, you bring nothing in, everything is given to you, and you're not taking it with you when you go. So, so Paul had experiences of, of plenty and hunger, of abundance and need, and, and they were learning experiences that contributed the development of his contentment, but there's also that this element of, of being aware of something, of knowing something, of, of keeping your, your mind aware of a fact that helps us to develop this contented heart. It's not just a feeling that we, we drum up out of nowhere, but it's possible, just like forgiveness and peace, it's only possible because something else is true. So we can forgive other people because we know that God is, has forgiven us a far greater debt than others will ever owe us. And we can love because we have been loved with a sacrificial love by God. We can experience peace because we know that in God's sovereignty, all things will work out for good. And in the same way, we can experience contentment because we know that our greatest treasure is in Christ. And this is what distinguishes Christian contentment from the contentment that other people try to attain apart from Christ, whether it's by living in tiny houses or living off the grid or or doing yoga or or anything else that that kind of um, pursues this this idea of of contentment. That's not Christian contentment. Jonathan Edwards preached his first sermon at the age of 18 entitled Christian Happiness or Christian Contentment, and he had three points that, that are still true today. And I think it really um, summarizes why Christians are content. Point one, our bad things will turn out for good. Point two, our good things can never be taken away from us. And point three, the best things are yet to come. Romans 8.28 tells us that all things work together for good for those who love God. And so the difficulties that, that Paul experienced were not enough to shake his contentment because he knew that God could work through his difficulties and his experiences to bring about good things. And our good things will never be taken away. In Christ, we have something that man can now take away from us, the forgiveness of sin and redemption from the curse of sin. And the best is yet to come. We look forward to eternity in paradise, to an eternity of joy and beauty and perfection. So as followers of Christ, we have a good reason to be contented people and to live lives of faith in Christ and trusting him as our greatest treasure. But the enemy of contentment is coveting. Paul moves from, from this commendation of contentment to, to cautioning about covetousness. And his words are our desire to be rich, which is the same thing as coveting. And there's many warnings throughout the Bible about the dangers of greed, the the risk of striving after money, and the trap of misdirected desires. One preacher said that during his years of ministry, he had lots of people come to him to confess sin, and many people would come to confess their involvement in things like pornography or, or even in adultery and wanting help to be freed from their sin. But in all his years of ministry, he never had anybody come to his office and confess that they were greedy. No one thinks that they're guilty of this. But the fact is, greed is is listed along with the other sins in the Bible that that separate us from God. 1 Corinthians 5.11 says, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Ephesians 5, 5, "...for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God." Colossians 3:5, "...put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming." So call it what you want, greed or coveting or idolatry. God calls it sin, and it has no place in the life of a follower of Christ. We're familiar with with the addictive and destructive nature of other illicit pleasures, whether it's alcohol, drugs, or sex. We know that if if you try to find satisfaction in these things, it will lead you on a path of greater and greater bondage and usually physical destruction. But the same thing is true about pursuing wealth. The same thing is true about a heart who is oriented towards pursuing wealth. So what kinds of sacrifices are you making and and, and for what ends? How much of what you do is not just to, to take care of your needs, but to pursue this mirage of success that you'll never actually reach? Paul says it's a trap. Pursuing wealth will catch you in its trap. And he's not just talking about people who are rich. He says this about anyone who seeks to be rich. And that can be the poorest person in this room or the richest person. It's not about the money. It's about the focus. The focus is what determines your destiny. It's kind of like driving down Skyline Drive with with a a carload of people and someone says, oh, look at the beautiful scenery. Well, you don't want the driver to look at the beautiful scenery because your car is going to go wherever the driver is looking. And so you really need to keep your focus on the road. But if your focus or your goal in life, if what you're about is to be rich, to to make money, to be successful, the Bible warns you that you're on a dangerous path. And Proverbs is is well known for its many directions on on our attitudes towards money. And I'll just read a few verses from there, Proverbs 23.4. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for it suddenly sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. 28.20. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. 28.25. A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. And thirty verse eight. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. And Jesus taught extensively as well about our attitudes to money as we know. And Luke 12 is the, kind of the parallel passage to the scripture reading that we had this morning. He said in there, Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This covetousness, greediness, isn't something that that we're aware of. It's not something that we seek to develop. It's not something that we necessarily try to be, but it's something that can creep up on us. And Jesus says, beware, be on guard for this attitude. Jesus said we cannot serve two masters if we're serving money and then we're not serving him. And that's the real problem with coveting. It takes our focus off of God as we pursue a false God. And and money seems to provide a level of security in life that that all of us want, and we think that it will protect us from loss. And if we have enough money, we'll be protected from from the pain of loss, whether it's the loss of income or shelter or or pleasures. But it it turns out that money becomes an idol, and, and we trust it more than we trust God. And Jesus calls us to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And as we live in in a complete trust and dependence on God, we can let go of this this frantic desire to accumulate more stuff. In Hebrews 13, 5, it says it well. It says, "'Keep your life free from the love of money "'and be content with what you have. "'For He has said, "'I will never leave you nor forsake you.' "'So we can confidently say, "'The Lord is my helper, I will not fear.' What can man do to me? And so this position of, of confidence in the Lord allows us to, to experience a contentment that frees us from this need to have more and more stuff. So, so how do we put this into action? This is primarily, like I said, an attitude, a kind of a heart um, focus that, that we need to develop. But how does a warning against coveting and greed and a call to contentment, how does that affect the decisions that you might make this week? And I said, it first of all requires a position of faith and dependence on Christ, like Paul described in Philippians 3. He said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So if Christ is not of surpassing worth to you, and if you're not living a life that is oriented toward him and surrendered under him, you will not be able to experience godly contentment. And and the first call to you would be to bring your life under God's rule. But there's also habits that that we can develop and employ to to cultivate this, this attitude of contentment in our lives as, as we live under the rule of Christ. And I think one, one simple way is to simplify. We, we don't need to buy everything that our society encourages us to buy just because everyone else has it or because it's the cool thing to have. W- what happens as you buy things is you develop this kind of need to have more things, and there, there's a certain level of tolerance that, that you develop as you acquire things. That, that says you need more to, to satisfy whatever whatever you think your needs are, and things that that happen to be luxuries at one income level become necessities at the next so if you have if you move from one income level to the next it doesn 't mean you need to adopt all of the necessities that go along with that income level and it, you know this changes as well from from generation to generation and it, um, just like microwaves and, and cell phones or dishwashers. Um, but it, it can also happen within, within your own um, life. I think smartphones is, is the latest example. It's, uh, yeah, I got my first smartphone a year ago, but what teenager do you find today that doesn't think they just have to have a smartphone in order to live? And it's, it's not a necessity. And it doesn't cultivate this, this idea of contentment. And if we take seriously this this direction to be content with food and clothing, we'll have to admit that we we do spend an awful lot of money on luxuries that we don't really need. But the the measure of greed isn't just about what we spend on ourselves, it's also about what we're willing to spend for others and our attitude towards giving. Are are we willing to part with our money to meet the needs of those around us? Christ is our ultimate example in giving, Paul says... For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus had more riches than we can ever imagine, yet for our sakes he took on a poverty, not only of possessions, but also of identity and being, so that we, because of this poverty that he was willing to experience, might become rich through taking on the identity of Christ, and ultimately to walk with him on streets of gold. So if you're serving yourself, or if you're serving money, or your pursuit of riches, you are experiencing your best life now, and it will disappoint. But if you faith, place your faith in Christ, and if you trust him with your needs and your desires for your life, he will give you a richness of contentment that no one can take away, and the best is yet to come. Let's have a song.